It's great to see you. Can I add my welcome to Medrishis? My name's Jeremy. It's really great to see you at Trinity. And if you've joined us for the first time, then you've chosen a great week because we're starting a new series looking at the book of Revelation. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the book of Revelation. Maybe you think about things like this. Uh, this is what I used to think about when I thought about the book of Revelation. Um, uh, things like uh, the beast, the mark 666, people shouting the end is nigh. I used to, when I was a teenager, I used to read the book of Revelation and I was absolutely terrified. I found it overbearing and scary. In fact, the irony is it's a book which is all about comfort. It's about incredible comfort. People who first received the book of Revelation knew that there were strong forces ranged against them. The beasts weren't news to them. What they needed was a, a sort of glimpse into heaven to pull back the curtains of heaven and see that everything was okay. The central message of the book of Revelation is something like this. It's okay. It's okay. Whatever's going on, God is on the throne. He's bringing everything to an end. You're going to be safe. It's a book all about comfort. I mean, if you find the book of Revelation quite strange, then just open it up on page 1233. Let me remind you of a few things. First of all, it's a normal letter. It's the kind of letter that we're used to in the New Testament. So if you look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, it starts, starts the normal way, the person writing, and then who he's writing to, and then grace and peace. That's the normal, that's the normal uh, way that a letter is written in the first century. Notice it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're used to that in, in the New Testament. If you look at verse, verse 5, Jesus Christ uh, has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. This is a gospel-hearted letter. There's nothing weird here. This is written for ordinary Christians to keep telling the gospel and remind them that Jesus will return. And notice it's all about the sovereignty of God. In verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the sort of A to Z, says the Lord God. Everything's under his control. God is in charge of all this. He is in control. And all of this is intended to give us a sense of security. It's okay. Things are all right. Particularly for the suffering church. So if you look at verse 9, John, uh, the Apostle John, is writing to these churches. He's saying, I'm your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, even though he's suffering religious persecution. That's why he's been sent to what is effectively a prison on the island of Patmos. That's why reassurance is, is needed, and that's why reassurance is given. It's okay, says John. Whatever's going on, God is on the throne. He is bringing everything to an end. You're going to be safe. It's a book full of reassurance. The structure of the book, you can see, uh, we'll be coming back to this a lot of times uh, over the next few weeks. It's got an introduction. It's got a glorious conclusion. And in between are sort of overlapping sections that, that show us the whole of um, the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return from different cam camera angles with different emphases. We're going to think about that as we work our way through the book week by week. But what are we going to be learning as we go through the book of Revelation? What, what do we want to take away from it? First of all, the security of the saints, uh, by which I mean every ordinary Christian. You are safe if you're a Christian. 
Nothing can ultimately harm us. We are going to be gathered under God's throne. And God has done everything necessary to bring that about. In the meantime, witness. Witness while you wait. That's the second thing, the security of the saints. Witness while you wait. Have that confidence and security. Keep witnessing. Don't keep your head down, even though you might be feeling the heat. Thirdly, suffering is certain. We are certain to suffer. Jesus warned us about that. In this life, you will have trouble, says Jesus. Um, it'll always put us on the wrong side of worldly powers if we, if we trust in Jesus. Sometimes they'll wage war against us using persecution, lies, false ideas, but God is going to win through. And that's why we're calling this series, Do Not Be Afraid. The words of Jesus from Revelation chapter 1, Do Not Be Afraid. That's our series in the book of Revelation. I hope you're looking forward to it as much as, we, as, much as me. We're going to dive straight in, and Tara's going to read to us from chapter 1. Thank you, Tara. Um, so today's reading is in Revelation chapter 1, 1 to 20, on page 1233, right at the back of the Pew Bibles. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words, uh, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kingdom, uh, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive, forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thanks. Thanks so much, Tara, for reading that. That's fantastic. And I hope you're doing okay. We're getting uh, into the book of Revelation. But just as we do so, we have this opportunity to pray to the one who is the first and the last, who is alive forever and ever. So let's pray to him as we begin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the claim that we've just heard that you were dead, but that today you are, you are alive and you will be forever and ever. And so uh, we dare to ask for your help as we look at your testimony, as we listen to your words. Please help us look at them honestly, to consider them carefully, and to think them through humbly. I pray that we would lay our lives down at your feet. And we pray these things because we can in your name. Amen. Uh, I don't know what the worst flight you've ever been on is. It's quite a stressful thing, isn't it? Being in an aluminium tube with sort of 400 people for a for quite a few hours. When I was a student, I decided I was going to go backpacking around Malaysia. Um, but being a student, I, um, I, I searched for the very, very cheapest flight. And uh, somewhere uh, on the way, um, there was basically a, a fight that broke out in the, um, in, in the airplane. No one was, was seriously hurt, but people started shouting. They were throwing things. It was sort of civil unrest. Uh, on the airplane, I tried to keep my head down. Uh, it was chaos. But the thing is that um, if you had to choose, you'd probably rather have chaos in the passenger compartment than chaos in the cockpit. I mean, if you had to choose one of those two, I think I'd choose chaos in, in, in the passenger compartment. If everything's okay up front, um, then, then, then there can be chaos at the back, but you're still going to be all right, basically. You, you, you're probably going to be going to be all right. If if everything's calm in the in the passenger compartment, but there's panic in the cockpit, well, then you're in trouble. And and the Book of Revelation was written into a sort of time of of chaos. Um, here's a picture of the Roman Empire um, under. Emperor Domitian in about uh, AD 95. The Mediterranean is basically his paddling pool. It's his, it's his sort of little swimming pool. And, and the persecution of Christians is vicious. It's vicious. And it must have felt like chaos if you're a Christian living through that. 
But in the middle of this situation, John is giving an image of Jesus that is so clear that it is shocking. And it's, it's like the door to the cockpit has been opened and, and we can see that Jesus is at the controls. And that, that's, the, that's the, the big reveal in verse 1, that the revelation from Jesus Christ. And we see that everything in the cockpit is under perfect control. Um, it's okay. That's the message of Revelation. Don't be afraid. Keep on going. Whatever is happening, God is at the controls. He's bringing everything to an end. You're going to be safe. Um, and I'd be surprised if you hadn't glimpsed um, something of the chaos of life um, from time to time in, in your experience. And for some of us this afternoon, that's going to be more in the background. It'll be something that we've been through. Maybe it's been more resolved. For others, we're just right up against it. Um, at the moment, it's right in our faces, uh, whether it's illness or losing our job or stress with the kids or difficult family relationships. And, and, and the thing is, we're going to need this image of Jesus firmly stamped on our minds if we're going to make it through, because it does sometimes feel chaotic. At least it does for me. And, and the book of Revelation says, Revelation chapter 1, says, if, if, if this is who Jesus is, then Christians may suffer, but they're undefeated. That's our first point from verses 9 to 11. We're going to concentrate on verses 9 to 20. And this is the first thing we learn. Christians may suffer, but ultimately they are undefeated. Uh, let me show you that from the book of Revelation. Have a look at page 1,233, um, if, if you'd like to. And I'm thinking particularly of verses 9 and 10. If you can see that right-hand column just at the top, verses 9 and 10. This is what it says in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see those three words in, in, in verse 9? It's incredible the way the Apostle John puts those three things together. Firstly, the suffering. Literally, it means a crushing of the grapes. It's like you're being stamped on. Uh, it's about pressure and, and, and it's about distress. And, and John is in, is in enormous pain. He's been separated from his church in Ephesus, people that he loves, people that love him. He's an old guy. You know, he'll, he's never going to get to his retirement home or, or, or get to relax with the grandkids. That's not what God has in store for him. Um, he's suffering. And, and that's important to know because we don't always want, um, we don't always want people who encourage us to be to be speaking from an ivory tower or a sort of university library. Um, we don't want it just to be theoretical. I mean, Christianity has never tried to hide the truth that, that Christians are certain to suffer. They are certain to suffer. We're not immune from suffering. Jesus promised as much. The Open Doors Report, they do a report each year on the state of Christianity and some of the, um, some of the places where Christians are suffering their report last year said that 360 million Christians faced high levels of persecution and discrimination. The number of people who had been killed had gone up markedly from the year before. 360 million of our brothers and sisters around the world 
And, and, and John is saying he's our companion and brother in this, you see. Um, he's there with us when we face hard times, the suffering. Then, then there's the kingdom. That's the, that's the second word. Um, John is a slave basically on the prison uh, in Patmos. Uh, he probably got there by um, refusing to call Domitian Dominus et Deus, which means Lord and God. Um, but he knows that he's, he's, he's part of a different kingdom. He knows he's living for a different king. He's got different loyalties, different priorities. It, it's so offensive to Domitian, uh, so submissive to Jesus. He knows who he's going to follow. He has this clear image of Jesus in his mind, and, and, and the Jesus that he follows is on the throne. He's the king of kings. And so what John's going to need, verse 9, is patient endurance. He's, he's going to have to keep going. The, the word means literally something like keeping going in the same direction despite severe difficulty. Keeping going in the same direction despite severe difficulty. And we know that we know that the Christians found it very difficult in the first century. We, there's still a letter that, that's been preserved from uh, a Roman uh, ruler called Pliny the Elder. And he was the ruler in Turkey, which is the part of the world where this book was written to. Um, and he'd come across some Christians. Uh, it was written about... Uh, he, he, and he writes to the emperor about these Christians. Obviously, they're a bit of a, bit of a nuisance for him. Uh, he's, a, he's a regional ruler. Uh, Revelation has probably been written about 15 years previously, and this is what he writes about them. You can see it on the screen. He's not a Christian. He's, he's stressed about these Christians in his part of the empire. And he says, I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserves to be punished. That's a, that's a real letter written by a Roman governor. Stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy are what the Bible calls patient endurance in the face of suffering. Having a, having a clear picture of Jesus and keeping going in the same direction. Christians may suffer but they're undefeated. They're undefeated. Maybe you know that in, in your workplace. Maybe people have found it hard for you. Someone came up to me when I was um, a junior doctor and they said, they said, Jeremy, if you could downplay the Christian thing, it'll go much better for you. Maybe you felt that as well. But, but this is what Christianity offers. It, it is an ability to suffer confidently. And you see it time and time again in every age. And, you know, there are, there are good friends of mine. There are faithful people who I know. Um, and they're either suffering or have suffered loneliness, crippling anxiety, long-term pain, broken marriages, financial pressure, immense hostility at work or no paid work at all or the death of a loved one. Those are Christians I can think of from the last six months. I, I don't know where your, where your pain is. I don't know what clouds your thoughts. 
during the day and keeps you awake at night. But you, you know what it's like when you hurt yourself? You, you, um, you keep on looking at the injury. And sometimes suffering sort of does that. It, it, it brings our focus in on ourselves. That's sort of an intuitive response, isn't it? Um, when, when we're hurting, um, that's a sort of in, in instinctive thing that we do. And, and the question is, can we keep on looking out to Jesus, looking outwards to him and listening to him? Can we do that through the pain? That's the question. Um, Jesus is the one who shed his blood in verse 5. Did you notice that? He shed his blood. He knows what it's like to hurt. But he has the voice of real authority. And we can cling on to him. If only by our fingernails, we can cling on to him by his strength. Suffering, kingdom, patient endurance. That's real life. Because, because Christians, you see, and this is our second title, Christians are stunned, but they're not afraid. They're stunned by Jesus, but they're not afraid of him. So um, in this vision that John's having, he turns around to see Jesus, and he's just completely overwhelmed, totally overwhelmed. He tells us that it's like looking into the sun and feeling a furnace and hearing the oceans roar all at the same time. That's what it's like for him to to meet Jesus. You know, most pictures of Jesus, I think there's one up in the stained glass window behind me. Uh, most pictures of Jesus um, have him with sort of blonde hair and, and blue eyes and a, and a sweet smile. And they make him look as if he wouldn't survive 10 minutes in central London. In fact, Revelation 1 tells us that central London wouldn't survive 10 minutes of Jesus. It's immensely powerful. And no wonder, if, if you turn back, because some of this language is borrowed from Daniel chapter 7, so why not turn back with me to page 893, or it's also going to go up on the screen if you draw there, page 893, Daniel chapter 7. Some of us have been having a look at this in our small groups. This is the background to Revelation 1. John's borrowing language from, from here. Have a look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. You'll, you'll recognize some of the language. This is a picture of the Ancient of Days. This is God himself. As I looked, says Daniel, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court was seated and the books were opened. That's the ancient of days. Now, now see how John describes, uh, see how Daniel describes the, the Son of Man. That comes in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, or it's up on the screen. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me, was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. No wonder... John is overwhelmed. 
Because all of this language gets applied to the risen Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, is the Son of Man who has glory and authority and sovereign power. And he has all the characteristics of the Ancient of Days. Can you see that? The white hair of exceptional wisdom and the flames of purity and the universe in his, in his right hand. And it's like the language about the Son of Man and the language about the Ancient of Days is, is getting all mixed up and applied to the one person. He's, he's man and God at the same time. There's no distinction in splendor between Jesus and God himself. But the point is this, as, as we turn back to Revelation chapter 1, the point is this, that the key words come in verse 17, um, two words, as though. As though. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, John describes the, the fatal brilliance of God. And he describes it in detail, his eyes, his mouth, his hair. And he only falls down as though dead. That, that is God's mercy. More than that, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is what Christianity offers, you know. Uh, a relationship with a, a, with a risen Jesus who has eyes of blazing fire... Imagine looking into those eyes for a minute. Imagine looking into the eyes of Jesus. They're going to cut straight through all your psychological defenses. Um, they know everything that we're thinking. They leave us exposed. There's no point acting or pretending. There's no reason to keep putting on a show. It is all known. But this Jesus puts his hand on the shoulder of John the, 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 the hand that was crucified, the hand that holds the universe, he puts that hand on the shoulder of John and says, do not be afraid. You know, Jesus' power is, is not to terrify us, it's to reassure us. Is that a wonderful thing? What does it say at the end of verse 5? It says that Jesus is the very one who's loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. There is nothing to be afraid of. And, and you can rely on him. He is reliable. Um, when our, our daughter Amy was at university, um, she had a good friend who wasn't a Christian. And uh, they'd uh, gone through some exams. And Amy was talking about the way that, that Jesus himself had, had brought her through those exams and she said, um, you know, I'm so glad to, to believe in Jesus. He gave me so much strength. He's someone I can rely on. And her friend said, same. I've got strength and someone I can rely on because I believe in myself. Now you choose which one of those two you would rather trust in. The Jesus of, of strength and, and power and, and goodness, the one who loves you. Or would you rather trust in yourself? You know, people who try and find strength in themselves, it's very contemporary, isn't it? Um, do you find until they can't find that strength? And then they start to feel the accusations. You know, um, you should have dug deeper. You should have found the strength. You should have been able to rely on yourself. And suddenly there's so much blame, you know? This Jesus is stunning in his wisdom 
and his strength and his purity and his power and his resources will never run out. You choose who you want to rely on. He's loved us and he's freed us from our sins by his blood. There's no blame there. If you, if you haven't found that yet, today could be an amazing day for you. The day you find an external source of strength which will never run out. It's inexhaustible. His power is not there to terrify you. It is there to reassure you. Christians are stunned, but not afraid. And, and more than that, thirdly and lastly, the Christian ultimately is someone who is dying but is eternally alive. Um, uh, there's a, a journalist who's, um, who's writing I enjoy. She's called Caitlin Moran. Um, she lives just up the road, actually. And she was writing in the paper about someone who was so full of energy, um, uh, she said that he was the absolute polar opposite of dead. That's a great description of someone, isn't it? The absolute polar opposite of dead. How much more, if she knew him, would she say that of Jesus? Um, notice in end of verse 17 how Jesus uses the name I am, this great Old Testament name for God. He uses it three times of himself. He says, I am the first and the last, by which he means I am the living one, by which he means I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. He's the absolute polar opposite of dead. And so the coffin has a way out. There's a way out of the coffin. Uh, he's the master of death. In fact, he, he not only escaped death himself, but he grabbed the keys to death on the way out. Did you notice that? Verse 18. I love that. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I nick them, says Jesus, when I escape from, from the grave. And so Caesar could say to Christians, I'm going to send you to Hades, to which the Christians are going to reply, you might try and send me there, but no one can lock me in because Jesus has taken the keys with him. Um, this is a, a copy of, of the book that I used to take funeral services. I've taken many funeral services um, using this book, Standing by the Graveside or um, at the Crematorium. This is what you say as the curtains come round the coffin. Um, tragic words, really but also words full of hope. It says, you say, we have entrusted this person to God's mercy and we now commit their body to the elements, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You say those words and then the, the curtain comes around. You might have heard those words at a, at a funeral that you've been to. But Jesus is more than dust and ashes. Uh, he is the permanent powerful man, fully and forever alive, the absolute polar opposite of dead. And, and so for the, for the first readers of Revelation, we know from chapter 2 that at least one person has been put to death from their church, Jesus holds the keys of death. He's stolen them so that death no longer holds any fear for us. You know, we are very afraid of death, aren't we? Um, I've got a, a philosophy book at home, not written by a Christian, but 
he says in the introduction that, that all philosophy is really an attempt to, to address the absurdity of death. It does feel very absurd, doesn't it, in some ways. In our society, death is hidden away in a hospital ward, and it's not something that we, that we see very often. But we do dread death because it seems to mock and, and undo everything that we've achieved. But Jesus holds the keys. We no longer need to fear it. Um, there are a, a few musicians here at church that sometimes play in a band. Uh, if they're still alive when I die, I've asked them to sing a song at my funeral. One of my favorite songs, I think Johnny Cash covered it. Um, Ain't no grave can hold my body down. I want that at my funeral. Jesus has taken the keys. Ain't no grave can hold our bodies down. And, and this is the Jesus, do you notice, who is walking among the lampstands? Walking among the lampstands in verse 20. In other words, he is here with our church. The lampstands represent the church, as we find that out at the end of Revelation. Jesus is here with our church, and, and it says he's holding the seven stars in his right hand. They represent the sort of destiny of our church. So the destiny of our church is in his grip. He knows about us, and he is holding Trinity Church Islington safe. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And we can find him in, in the chaos. You know, there's an extent to which each one of us presents a sort of neatly manicured life when, when we're together at church. But if you're not facing chaos now, you will, you will one day. Indeed, one day, if we, if, if, if we don't face the certainty of trusting him in faith, we will face the chaos of facing him in judgment. That's not a chaos that you want to face. But when we come to Jesus, it's okay. We're not to be afraid. He's bringing everything to an end. We're going to be safe. There's peace in the cockpit. Jesus is taking us to our destination. And so Christians can suffer, but they're undefeated. They can be stunned by the purity and strength of Jesus, but be unafraid of him. We can be dying, but be eternally alive. Please don't leave this afternoon without discovering that Jesus. He can carry you through. Don't be afraid, he says. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. Amen. Shall I pray? Thank you, Father, for this stunning picture of Jesus. Thank you for the way that he holds the keys of death. I pray, Father, that we would find peace and security in, the him, in him in the middle of a chaotic world. And so, Father, I pray that we can say that we are undefeated and unafraid and eternally alive because his life becomes ours and his glory is something that evokes our praise. Please fix our eyes on him, even when we're rehearsing. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.